Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Thorsten Joachims. Thorsten is professor in the Department of Computer Science at Cornell University. Thorsten, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, so before we dive in, uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background and how you got uh, interested and involved in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, it was actually quite accidental how I got into <laughs> machine learning and how the, all of this started. Um, I, uh, I got my degrees at the University of Dortmund in Germany, and there was exactly one professor who did artificial intelligence, and that was always something that fascinated me. And that was Katharina Morik, and she did machine learning. And so that's how I got into machine learning. But I, I very quickly realized that within AI, this is the... I think one of the most exciting areas to be in because it really enables AI in a in a way that we can't really foresee um, and that creates interesting new results that we just I mean that we haven't programmed in our systems. So I think this idea of learning from data is just fascinating. Absolutely, absolutely. I think you have many in the listening audience that will agree with you. And so you were here in Las Vegas. I'm still in Las Vegas. You are back at Cornell, but you were here in Las Vegas presenting at the AI Summit at uh, the reInvent conference. Uh, what were you presenting on there? Yeah, that's right. So much of my work, um, actually, both as a professor here at Cornell, um, as well as um, as an uh, Amazon scholar working in Amazon Music, has to do with um, learning from log data, from interaction logs. And what I mean by this is uh, the kind of data that we observe in our systems um, kind of as a side product of people using the system. So it's like the, the logs of a search engine where you can see what people query and where they click or recommender systems where you know we make recommendations and we see whether people follow this recommendation, uh, e-commerce systems, but also now reaching more and more out into the physical world, like smart homes and, uh, and self-driving cars, anytime where people use the system and we receive feedback. I think this is one of the most plentiful data that we have. Um, and it certainly, I mean, it, it reveals the choices that people make, and that reveals a lot of knowledge about the world. But at the same time, it's data that's actually pretty difficult to analyze because it's biased in multiple ways. And dealing with these biases, I think, I mean, that's what my talk was about. And that's what much of my research is also about. How do we learn from this data and how do we de-bias it? Okay. I can give you, I can give you a, um, a simple example of what I mean by bias here. And bias has many different meanings. And Actually, many of these different meanings apply, but let me be very specific about uh, one of the meanings. So think about um, a movie recommendation system. Uh, you know, Netflix released this um, big data set um, uh, now, you know, many years ago, actually, at this point. And if you look at that data set and look at the average star rating that people give, you're kind of in the four-star region. <laughs> uh -huh. And... 
if you think about it well, I mean, that can be reflective of the kind of average rating that people would give an Amazon, uh, um, um, a Netflix movie, right? So if I actually drew a random movie from the Netflix catalog and had a random user, a uniformly at random, rate that movie, that wouldn't be a four-star movie probably, right? It would be much lower. So if I look at the ratings that people provide, they're actually self-selected, right? They're biased. People rate the movies that they watch, and of course, they watch the movies that they think they will like. Mm -hmm. So if I look at the revealed ratings that people give, then that's a biased sample of all the ratings that they would probably want to give. Now, that's a problem because if I don't account for this, I can be really far off in evaluating how good my movie recommendation will do, uh, system will do. Um, and in particular, if I now think about what a, what a recommendation system should actually do, is it should actually change the distribution of ratings that, we, that, that the user gives, right? What we want, what the user wants from a recommendation system is interesting new choices. So if I now take old data that I have and then train a new recommendation system from it, deploy that, the data that I'm gathering now actually will have a different distribution, right? It will be biased by the recommendations that the new system makes. And so what I really want is, you know, I have to account for the fact that if I train a system and then field it, I'm actually intervening in the world and I'm changing the distribution of my data. So I always have these kind of counterfactual problems that I need to solve of, you know, what will happen if I change my system? And that's what makes this learning from log data hard because what I observe is the behavior on my old system. But what I really want to optimize is the behavior or the benefit that people draw from my new system. But for that, I don't have data yet. So I've been talking, I mean, what I talked about in the talk is basically how to deal with these uh, kind of bias and, uh, and, and shift problems. This is a super interesting topic. I remember a conversation that I had with someone on the, on the podcast. I don't remember how it came up or who it was, but we were talking about this, this issue of bias in user rankings and, and user feedback. And one of the, the comments that I remember making was that, you know, you, you kind of describing this almost bias at the level of the, the data set, but there's also, uh, you know, individual bias, like some, you know, I may be, uh, a, you know, my, my kind of average movie is a three, but for some people it's a two and for other people it's a four. And I remember asking the, the person in this context that they've heard of kind of research into how to deal with all of that. And we didn't come up with anything. Uh, so I, mean, I imagine these are issues that you're very familiar with. Yeah, I mean, right. There's, um, there's as I said, bias has many different meanings in this context. Um, what I've been talking about is selection bias, really. There is also this kind of, you could call this, um, you know, that people use a rating scale in a different way. And we've actually done research on that as well. So um, in particular, uh, that comes up when you do things like peer grading or peer reviewing. Um, and so that's right. So one reviewer may use, you know, a scale from one to 10, um, like, you know, mostly give like high ratings or low ratings. Uh, another user may 
you know, kind of anchor the scale at, at some other place. Yeah, we've actually done work on that problem as well, although that's, that's uh, somewhat different. Um, and we've actually deployed this at um, the KDD conference in 2015 uh, when um, I was one of the program co-chairs and trying to actually de-bias reviewer ratings to come at kind of fairer decisions about which papers to accept. But that's, that's slightly different, this problem. Sure. Um, what I'm talking about here is really more that it's about where we get data. Uh, and, you know, that, that there's a selection of, you know, what ratings we observe and which ones we don't. So the extreme case, I mean, this comes up basically in all online systems. So, and some of the extreme cases are, for example, an ad placement system. And there, it's really um, very clear. So if I think about an ad placement system, let's say display advertising, then I have my current system that's displaying ads. And so a new user comes in to a particular page. My current system now selects an ad to display. And then for that particular ad, I get to see whether the user clicks on it or not. But I don't get to see what would have happened if the system had presented a different ad. So here I very much have a selection bias that the current system in production influences where I observe feedback. Um, or think about a search engine where your current ranking function, you know, in response to a particular query, it presents a ranking, and that really puts a strong selection bias where I get clicks. I'm going to get clicks on the, you know, top few results. Um, you know, it's very unlikely that anybody is going to go to position 100 and reveal any of the kind of, you know, whether something was relevant there. So again, here we have that the current system that's in production really biases where I get clicks and now if I use or where I get feedback and now if I use this data kind of naively to do learning from what I'm basically just rediscovering is you know whatever my old system did um, and so what we've been done or what we've been doing is to rethink how to use this data from actually from a perspective of causal inference so let's let's take the ad placement system um, as the canonical example here, but it actually applies to all of these systems. Then the way that you can think about this is really not as a prediction problem, but much more as a problem of, you know, just like what you have in like a medical setting of applying a treatment. So think, um, you know, if you are, if you want to come up with a personalized treatment uh, uh, policy for a particular person, then you may have, let's say, some lab measurements for that person. Then the doctor decides, you know, to give that person, you know, drug A or drug B or the surgery. That's the treatment. And then you get to observe for that particular treatment that was chosen, whether the person gets better or not. And it's really the same setup that we have in our online systems as well. Like think about ad placement, right? The user comes in, we have some idea, you know, about the user profile. Then we, we take an action, we apply a treatment. That's a particular ad that we place. And then we see the outcome for that particular ad that was chosen. But we don't get to see what would have happened if I had applied any of the other treatments, any of the other ads. And I can make the same story for almost any online system 
um, as well. So it's really, you know, we can re what we've been doing is we've rethought what it means to do learning in online systems, kind of from the perspective of learning a policy that makes interventions. And we want these interventions to have the desired effects in the world, right? That's what I meant when I said about uh, the recommendation system. What I really want is I want to make recommendations to the user and I want to change behavior in a way that the user appreciates it. Mm -hmm. So it's really learning, it's learning to intervene. It's not learning to predict. And that has interesting impl implications for, um, uh, for machine learning. And it kind of puts it into relation to problems like covariate shift and really causal inference, right? We want to have a policy that makes interventions that cause some desired behavior in the world. And so is the approach related in some way to the, the notion of uh, like A-B testing or multivariate testing where you're displaying multiple options to the user to give you, uh, in this case, to give you kind of more insights into what you may have missed out on? Yeah, that's right on. I mean, the kind of gold standard for doing causal inference is a controlled randomized trial, right? That's what mm -hmm. we use in medicine. Mm -hmm. If you want to figure out whether drug A is better than drug B, Basically, what we do is we give some fraction of the population or of the of our patients drug A, randomized. Um, another fraction gets uh, gets the other treatment, and if we do the randomization correctly, then um, that's a strong evidence of the causal effect of the treatment, right? And randomization is the key here. It's easier than it sounds. It, it is actually. Uh, or harder it than be, it sounds. It's easy. It's, it, it sounds easy. <laughs> it, it sounds easy. In practice, it can be quite hard. Um, and basically, what we're what we're saying, I mean, what, what you're doing in an A/B test and an online system is exactly a controlled randomized trial, right? Some fraction of your users gets, you know, ranking function A or recommender function A. The other one gets recommender function B, and then you can compare which one works better. That's really the gold standard for causal inference, but it's also incredibly expensive because what you need to do is you need to code up that, that you know, new ranking function or policy more generally. Then you need to productionize it. You need to test it. And then you need to field it on your system you know, for at least a week because otherwise you, know, you have cyclical effects from the week and probably even longer to get um, reliable results. If you have a lot of different systems that you want to evaluate this way, it's going to take you forever. And your machine learning development cycle is going to be incredibly slow. Right. Or if you don't have a lot of traffic. Uh, if you don't have a lot of traffic, right. I mean, basically the limiting factor is also traffic, right? It's developer's time for productionizing all of these policies. And then it's traffic. Mm -hmm. We already have, you know, probably, you know, terabytes of old log data, existing log data lying around. And if you think about it, online A-B testing is actually really wasteful. We, you know, we put these policies into production, we collect the data, and then we never reuse that data. We use it exactly once, and then you know, we don't actually know what to do with it. So the kind of the intriguing idea that we've pursued in, over the last few years is whether you can actually avoid online A-B tests but instead do something like counterfactual or offline A-B tests. And that's basically addressing the question of, here's a, here's a lot of old log data that we already have. And I'll 
we have to qualify that this has to be somewhat special log data. I'll come back to that in a in a bit. But that we have a lot of log data lying around, and that we can now do answer the following counterfactual question. If we have a new policy that we want to evaluate and do causal inference on, that we ask the question, how well would that policy have done if we had used it instead of the policy that was actually running at the time? So it's this counterfactual question, but essentially it gets at the same at the heart of causal inference again is, you know, how good is this policy? And can we use the existing log data to evaluate a new policy without ever having to field that new policy in a new A-B test? And it turns out in under certain conditions, it's actually possible to do this. And if you're able to reuse old log data, you can evaluate a new policy or you know, let's say a new ranking function or a new recommender policy in seconds. And you can do that for many, many new policies. And um, now you know, you're basically now speeding up your development cycle or your evaluation cycle from weeks that it takes to do an online A-B test to seconds that it takes to do one of these counterfactual or offline A-B tests. So the question, of course, is when is this possible? And it's possible to do this offline A-B testing if the policy that you use to record your original data, your, you know, these terabytes of log data that you already had, have, if that policy was sufficiently stochastic. So that gets us back to controlled randomized trials, right? There we also exploited that the assignment of people to or of, of, uh, of subjects to conditions was random. But it turns out that it doesn't have to be uniformly at random. It doesn't have to be, you know, you flip a coin and, and uh, assign people this way. Any form of randomness, even if it's like, you know, 95% to 5% is sufficient to, even in hindsight, in retrospect, compute unbiased estimates of, a, of the performance of a new policy. So that leads us into questions or into techniques from causal inference like inverse propensity weighting. And um, what this basically means is that you take your existing log data that was collected according to a stochastic policy, and you basically just reweight distributions to your new um, to your new policy. And if you do that in a particular way, you can actually prove that you can get unbiased estimates of the performance of a new policy, basically the same number that you would get in an online A/B test, but just by reusing existing data under the right conditions. And if you can do that, yeah, then you can also do learning. Okay, you've mentioned a couple of times the you know the right conditions and the the right ways of doing these things. How restrictive are these conditions? If you want to evaluate a new policy, you can you have to restrict that policy to actions that had non-zero probability of being selected in the past. And that's pretty intuitive. If you have a new policy that picks actions that you could not have possibly ever taken in the past, there's just no way to know whether that action is any good. So the basic condition is that um, you can only evaluate policies um, on the actions that um, you know your logging policy that collected the data had 
basically non-zero probability of choosing. It doesn't mean that it needs to have chosen all of these possible actions, typically only a very small subset of it, but it had to have non-zero probability to do it. Does this condition derive from kind of like an information theoretic type of approach? Like you, you need to have this information in sufficient quantities uh, in your, your log store you know, to practically do anything? Or is it more, you know, from a, a probabilistic inference perspective and, you know, Bayes' theorem and dividing by zero? It's it's more actually, I mean, it's Or both. something totally different. <laughs> it, there, there is actually, um, you never really get a dividing by zero problem. Um, you get it. So there there's two problems. If you're trying to evaluate a policy that picks actions that weren't even available in the past. There's just, you have no information about them. And so at that point, your estimate, your offline A-B test becomes biased. It's no longer unbiased. Right. Just because, you know, you don't know what to do for these actions. So you're going to impute basically a zero there or, you know, whatever you want to impute. And, but that's kind of drawn out of the hat and you don't know whether that's true. So if you have zero probability, then you get a biased estimate, but you can avoid it by restricting your new policy to only those actions that didn't have zero probability. The second issue is that, well, maybe that action had a tiny probability under when you logged the data. And then you're dividing, so if you do this inverse propensity weighting, you're basically dividing by that probability. You're dividing your estimate by this very small number and that drives up the variance of your estimate. You're unbiased, but you get an estimate that has large variance, which is also not good. So there's kind of the fundamental issue of zero probabilities, and then you become biased. And then there's the practical issue of if you have very small probabilities um, of having chosen a particular action in your logs, then you become, uh, you're still unbiased, but you have large variance, and which is also not uh, uh, you would have need a lot of data um, right. to overcome that, yeah. Right. And so from the perspective of someone who wants to try to use this, how complex is it? The mathematics behind it are actually really simple. In terms of designing of computation, doing this offline A-B tests is easy. Um, uh, it's more, as you said before, you know, Things like making sure that the assignment is random and computing or logging these propensities, conceptually, that can be quite tricky. And then there's the question of learning, right? Um, once you can do this offline evaluation, these offline A-B tests, then basically you can take existing learning algorithms, like you know things like a conditional random field or a deep network, and instead of training them with kind of hand-labeled data, you can train them with log data. Because basically what all of these methods are doing is empirical risk minimization. So they would, they're minimizing training error, right? Mm -hmm. And training error is nothing like an unbiased estimate of your generalization error. And typically we use, you know, the fraction of errors as our unbiased estimate of the generalization error, and that's what we use as training error. But these inverse propensity score 
um, estimators are also unbiased estimators of my generalization error. So I can basically just substitute my normal training error for which I need hand-labeled data with these IPS-weighted types of training errors for which I can use log data to train them. So I can basically this way, I can repurpose many existing, as I said, like deep learning or other learning algorithms, um, just by training them according to a different objective. And that's something that we've been developing um, uh, over the past few years as well. So how can we train now um, based on log data, um, all of these methods, instead of having to use hand-labeled um, full information data? And so is it the case that I'm only able to use this technique going forward in the sense of, you know, once I start to generate my experiments in a way that's consistent with the, the conditions we've discussed, you know, then I have access to all of this log data, but, you know, likely if I've not been thinking about this previously and I try to apply it, everything that I, I have is, you know, either kind of a mess or I don't have enough applicable rigor or, or, or that my approach hasn't been systemized in a way that I, I can do this? Or can you always kind of select, you know, a subset of cases for which your old log data is useful and then just work with that? Right, yeah. So it's certainly easiest if you're logging your data already in mind that you want it to be stochastic. Um, so, for example, a simple way of doing this is if you're currently using some deterministic rule that maybe you know scores your candidates and then picks the candidate with the maximum score. That's you know how many ad placement systems, for example, work. Mm -hmm. um, that would be a de deterministic blogging policy, and um, that would be difficult to use. Um, but you can easily turn this into a stochastic logging policy by changing this argmax into a softmax. And then you would be logging new data where you know exactly you know, the probability of choosing each of these individual actions. Mm -hmm. um, that's certainly the easiest. And you're, but, you refer to this as a, a logging policy. It, it's, is it, it's not the logging itself that you're changing. It's kind of the underlying thing that you're doing, you know, displaying ads or recommendations or what have you. And you're just logging what happens. Am I interpreting right. that correctly? That's right. So okay. what I mean by logging policy is just um, whatever your system was that was in operations when you created the logs. So right. it's, it's your, the ranking function that you've used um, or, you know, the ad placement um, function or the recommender that was actually in production when you recorded the logs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's easiest if that is explicitly stochastic and you made it stochastic in a way that you can easily record all of the propensities and the probabilities of choosing the, 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 the respective actions. That's great. But I would, in many cases, I would argue that the data that you have, the log data that you have, is already stochastic. So, for example, if you've been running A-B tests in the past, then the assignment of users to different conditions of your A-B test, that was a random assignment already. So it's already stochastic in the sense that any particular user could have gotten multiple ver different versions of the system. And that stochasticity that you already have and that you can exploit. Um, actually, we've shown that 
in ranking settings um, where you have, let's say, a search engine, there you can, even if you have a deterministic ranking function, you can exploit that your users are stochastic. So in particular, some users will go down to position three, some will go down position five, some will go down to position 20. And this stochasticity is something that you can actually exploit, even though your system is deterministic, the logs are still stochastic because your users are stochastic. To do that, you would then need to estimate, um, you know, something like a, um, you know, propensity curve based on position. But that's something we can do, and we actually have an upcoming wisdom paper for how to do that uh, very efficiently. It strikes me that there might be some implications on the effectiveness of this relative to whatever your distribution is. Uh, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier with the comments about the variance. If you've got a, a distribution that has a, a, a wide variance or many choices, for example, do all of these things come into play and in your ability to, uh, to learn uh, and converge on a solution? Yeah, um, I mean, you're right on in the sense that if the system that logged the data is very different from the system that you're now evaluating, um, effectively, um, you know, it's, we, we often talk about effective sample size in these settings when you do these counterfactual estimates. If these two systems are very far apart, then it's, it's quite intuitive that whatever is in your log data doesn't tell you that much about, um, you know, the, the evaluation of this new system. If they're very different, the kind of overlap between the two is very small. This will typically show itself in kind of having large variance in, um, in your offline A-B tests. So really there's practical limitations about what you can evaluate and how reliably you can evaluate. This works best if the new system that you want to evaluate is not that far away from the production system or from the logging policy that logged the data. So, um, and there are diagnostics to kind of see um, how reliable um, you are here. But you're right, you can't, you know, if your new system does something completely different from the old system, you know, there's just not enough information in the logs. Right. But I would argue in many cases, you know, you're making incremental improvements, you know, you're changing your ranking function, you're changing a little bit, you're changing your uh, ad placement function a little bit. So I'd say many of the kind of online A-B tests that you're doing today could probably be replaced by these types of offline counterfactual A-B tests. But then once in a while, you, you have to go out, collect new data probably. And I would also say that, you know, before making a big launch decision, I would just, you know, double check in an online A-B test um, that <laughs> really everything's fine and that, you know, there's that nothing unforeseen is happening. But I think this, these offline A-B tests are really interesting for speeding up your development cycle, that you don't have to go out, get new data for every little decision that you're making, but you just need to kind of get a reality check once in a while. Does this impose a requirement on folks that are using this technique that they need to keep track of their distributions in some way, like in their logs in a way that they're probably not doing today? Yeah. So the, the biggest thing is probably that, you know, whenever you pick an action um, and you're logging this, that you also log 
what's called the propensity, which is the probability of uh, of taking that action under the current policy. So, you know, the, the logging policy that, um, as I said, ideally is stochastic. So, you know, it will pick actions from a distribution. Then when it made, it made its choice, you just record that one number of what the probability of that choice was. And that's the most important thing to log. And with that number, um, you can, you know, that's the most important number for doing this inverse propensity weighting. Okay. And it's really just one additional number that you need to log. It's not that you need to log the whole distribution or, you know, anything complicated. It's just this one number. It, it sounds like a really interesting technique. Is it, does it fit into a broader array of, of tools kind of based around a similar idea that, that folks should be looking into? Yeah, I mean, this idea of doing this counterfactual evaluation has been something that, um, uh, you know, especially also uh, people at Microsoft, but now much more broadly, um, um, in it uh, has been accepted in industry. Uh, you know, there were very interesting papers at the last Rexus conference on both from uh, YouTube um, implementing these kind of counterfactual uh, learning techniques from Spotify. Um, uh, so, I mean, this I, this is an area that is maturing and where there's actually now a lot of interest, both in academia and also in industry, on how to design better estimators, um, how to uh, design learning algorithms that are robust in this setting. Um, because arguably, really, that's that's where the data is, right? That's where we have lots and lots of training data. Um, and um, it's much cheaper to work with this data than to get, you know, hand-labeled data. Very interesting stuff. Uh, were there any other things that you covered in your talk at the conference? One thing that I would love to have covered more, but I didn't have the time, is actually the, you know, the other meaning of um, of bias, and that's the meaning in terms of fairness. Um, because I think actually all of these questions are quite related. Um, so. Once you think about, you know, what your system does, not as prediction, but as a policy that has effects in the real world and that has desirable effects and undesirable effects that you may want to optimize or minimize, then really thinking about, I mean, that is really the right vocabulary to think about fairness of your policy as well, right? And we've been thinking, I mean, that's actually been very interesting for me personally in terms of my research. And it's really enabled me to talk about fairness, um, let's say, of a search engine in a in a much more concise way. So, for example, um, you know, if you think about what a search engine does, it's really a system that um, you know allocates attention among the items that it ranks. Mm -hmm. So, from that perspective, you know, it's a policy. And it's a policy that has an effect on both the users of the system. Those would be the people typing in the query. But it's also a policy that has an effect on the items that are being ranked, right? And in particular, in the way that this policy allocates exposure. You know, things that get ranked to position one get more exposure than things that are ranked to position 10. So now, if you think about it that way, um, what we want is we want policies that allocate exposure in, in, a, in a way that is fair. And what's fair, uh, it's both, it has to be fair both to the users as well as to the items being ranked. Because 
you know, if you think about the settings where we use rankings today, um, the items, you know, could be people that are candidates for a job. And so we want to make sure that, you know, um, that we don't, uh, for example, if there are protected groups among our, our job candidates, that we're allocating exposure in a fair way and we're not biasing how the system allocates exposure. What was actually, what's interesting is in information retrieval, going back to the 70s, coming out of library science, there was this very strong focus on maximizing the utility of the system to the people who type in the query. And that was fine when we were ranking books in the library um, because, you know, there it's really more mostly about the, you know, the people coming to the library wanting to find books. And the books really didn't have many rights or needed much protection. Um, it was really a tool for finding what people wanted. But now when we're ranking, let's say, job candidates or, you know, ranking romantic, potential romantic partners or, you know, we're ranking anything, it's really that we have to rethink what it means to design a ranking system. And this old principle of ranking by probability of relevance is actually not necessarily fair. I mean, we want to rank based on merit and merit equals relevance, but we can allocate exposure uh, in many different ways. So current retrieval systems basically are a winner-takes-all types of system. Whoever claims the first spot is you know, getting the, by far the most attention. But let's say for ranking job candidates, if we have two candidates that are, or let's say we have 10 candidates that have almost the same qualifications for the job, one person is epsilon better than, let's say, the, the other people. Is it really fair that that epsilon better person gets far more than epsilon more attention than all the other 10? I'm not sure, right? right. So we may argue for in any particular situation that we actually, we still want to allocate exposure based on relevance, but this kind of winner takes all is not maybe not the right way. Maybe we want to actually make exposure proportional to relevance, which would mean that all of these 10 candidates would get almost the same exposure. Just this one person gets like a little bit of epsilon more, but it's not a winner takes all system anymore. So I think many of the techniques of debiasing data that I've talked about here for selection biases and propensity weighting are actually extremely useful for also dealing with fairness in these settings. And so I think there's an interesting connection there. Okay. And is uh, that latter uh, interpretation something that you've published on to date? Yeah, the, we had a, a KDD paper at the last KDD conference. It sounds like really interesting work, and I'm really uh, thankful for you for taking the time to share it with us. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Thorson. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.